Welcome everyone to the Unrestricted Areas podcast. Today we have a special treat, which is our pre-draft podcast. And as our guest today, we have um, two people from the first tier of draft analysts. I know that a lot of uh, people in doing their mocks and otherwise have gone to tiers rather than <laughs> individual listing of players. Well, in anyone and everyone's first tier, these two uh, people that we have with us today are in that first tier, regardless of how many, how, how many people actually populate the tier. So the two people that are joining us today, it's our honor and privilege. One is Adam Spinella, who uh, is a former um, college basketball coach and recruiter, who's now the head coach at um, Boys Latin School in high school in Baltimore. And I've, many of you who have been subscribers to Basketball Intelligence are familiar with his work. Uh, not only is he a draft guru, but he's one of the best basketball analysts out there. You've seen his film breakdown and his other analyses and they're top notch, obviously. And so um, we're very fortunate to have him joining us today to give his views on the upcoming draft. And our other guest, is the great Fran Fraschilla, who obviously all of you know. Unfortunately, I only have 45 minutes, so I can't give all of his background because that would take an hour and a half. But um, Fran, as you know, um, was head coach at several D1 schools um, and in most recent years uh, has been an analyst for ESPN and NBC. Uh, in fact, um, Currently, he's uh, covering TBT and also the uh, Olympics for basketball. So very, very busy. And we're so fortunate that he can squeeze us in today uh, to talk about the draft. Um, so let's turn it over to them. I'm going to be mostly listening like you are. Every once in a while, I might have a question that uh, some reason or other didn't get covered, but that I'm most curious about, but for the most part, let's just have Adam and Fran discuss the upcoming draft. You want to kick us off, Adam? Absolutely, Ray. Thank you for the uh, the introduction here, and, and I certainly believe I'm at least two years away from being two years away of being anywhere close to Fran Fraschilla in oh the boy. basketball <laughs> this discussion, but uh, again, oh. thr thrilled to have you here, Coach. Thank you for, for joining today. My pleasure, Adam. Congrats on your new position, too, by the way, from uh, Carlisle to Boston. That's cool. Up for Baltimore. I'm sorry. That's cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, I think in a lot of people who are analyzing the draft for the first time are just trying to get rapid fire thoughts ahead yeah. of next week's NBA draft. They're trying to dive in to see context wise how this draft stacks up next to you know years in the past or, or a typical draft year, so to speak. One of the, the phrases that gets thrown out a lot is that top tier of talent. And it seems like from the beginning of this draft cycle, there have been maybe five or six names that have been mentioned in that, that top tier. I don't know if you agree with that assessment or how you might stack up the top level talent in this year in comparison to, uh, to years past. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think what's happened, uh, what, what seems to happen, Adam, every year is that we get a sense a year or two or three before as to who are the likely players who uh, end up in that top tier. And then it obviously changes. And of course, when Giannis Antetokounmpo goes 15th and, you know, players like that uh, end up in the middle of the first or late first round, that blows it up. But certainly I think because of USA Basketball, uh, and the success they have had at the at the world junior level, we've known about Jalen Green and Jalen Suggs and Scotty Barnes and Mobley and Cunningham uh, for a while now because we've gotten a chance to see them on a lot of different stages. So, you know, and then if you throw Jonathan Kaminga in there with his prodigious athleticism and potential, it makes sense that we do have a top tier of of you know four, five, or six. And, and to me, it's just an easy way for uh, scouts, teams, fans, prognosticators like you and me to get our arms around, you know, what to expect from from like the let's just say the, the very few first picks 
in the draft. So we go into this draft with an idea that's a strong draft. Um, and last year's was weak. And then what we saw was two of the top three players in last year's draft were sensational. And by the way, I'm a believer that there's really rarely such a thing as a bad draft because again, when Anthony Bennett goes one and there were a whole host of players picked before Giannis um, that were, uh, have also struggled that, you know, a, a good draft really is measured. It takes three years at least. And then also we look at a draft and say, man, there were a lot of guys taken in the middle of the first or Draymond Green in the second. And it actually turned out to be a pretty good draft. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned patience as part of that too. I think that's something that's missing from today's media dialogue quite frequently. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing that right now with discussions about James Wiseman, who was picked second last year. I think that that's yeah. just something often overlooked in this process. Uh, you also mentioned not, having necessarily a bad draft. I, I love that take as well, especially yeah. with the, the level of skill development that goes on at younger ages right now and positional fluidity, big men can do things that guys 15, 20 years ago couldn't necessarily do. There's a whole host of, of skills. And I think that that also raises the level of the ceiling for a draft class, as well as oh. provides more depth. Like the names that you see around the end of the first round right now, are probably more talented and skilled than you might've seen five, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think also the three-year uh, window really comes from, and you've probably heard this in, in the same vein, from all of my MBA friends um, who have said, we, we don't ever judge a class uh, you know, based on what a, what a rookie does in the first year. By the way, you know, these rookies, including James Wiseman, they did not have the benefit this past year of summer league they had a very truncated training camp and then they were, you know, then we were off and running again and playing NBA basketball in unprecedented times. So not only physically, but mentally, this was an amazingly difficult year for a, for a young man to, uh, you know, plop down in, onto an NBA roster and have a, have a huge effect. So I do think the three-year window is uh, particularly apt for this past season and this next cu upcoming couple seasons. And I'm still a big James Wiseman guy um, and think that uh, his long-term potential is very high, but certainly, you know, he didn't have the year with the ball in his hands, by the way, that a Lomelo ball or an Anthony Edwards had the luxury of having. Yeah. In addition, he only played three college games. Exactly. Exactly. We're talking Ray about a young man who definitely needs, you know, some, sometimes it's just a matter of what does he need? He needs game experience, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously, obviously James has to work on some things uh, because he is six, six, 11 or seven feet probably. But yeah, game experience is something that he is really lacking in. And, uh, and, and I think that's going to be a big, big part to unlocking the key to his future. Fran, I know you mentioned uh, kind of agreeing with that top six, so to speak, yeah. or those names that, that are kind of evidently in there. Are there other guys that you believe are in that tier knocking on that door or some of your your favorite prospects that might be just outside that ledge? Well, I think what's going to happen is, um, to, to answer your question, Adam, there are, um, because I do think that even in the top six, there's a little bit of bust potential. You know, I, I think Jonathan Kaminga is a tremendous talent. I got a chance to watch him work out about a month ago. Um, seems like a great kid. Um, worked hard in the workout, really shoots it well. But that's a kid that really needs to learn how to play the game uh, in terms of uh, feel, sk offensive skill level beyond shooting. I think he's going to be a good shooter, but the ball handling, passing, feel for the game. I don't think he's going to be a bust, but I'm just saying uh, there may be guys – uh, to answer your question, I'll say uh, uh, one of my favorites in this draft uh, is Chris Duarte because he is uh, 24 years old. And really, that's the only knock I can find on him um, at 6'6". Uh, he, he reminds me he reminds me so much of Clay Thompson. It's scary. Two way a wing guard um, can shoot it, create his own shot, plays with toughness, uh, very good defender. And I, and by the way, comes out of a program that has been devalued in recent years by NBA scouts, you know, Dylan Brooks, Chris Boucher, and most recently Peyton Pritchard, who a lot of people didn't think was a first round pick. And I, I talked to some Celtic guys yesterday here and um, people associated with the Celtics. 
uh, up and down rookie year, but certainly more ups than downs. But all three of those guys were somewhat, I don't know if it's because they're in hiding in the Pacific Northwest, but so Duarte's a kid minus his age, I think could probably step on an NBA court right now. Uh, Jared Butler, I think now that he's been cleared seemingly, I think is going to be a very good NBA player. He's another guy that, uh, you know, that comes to mind for me. And um, I'm anxious to see the foreign kids because I like them. I like, you know, how much I like international kids. And uh, Shingun is interesting to me because uh, like you, I've studied him. Uh, but I, what I like to do is talk to my European friends and former players. And, and one, of my, one of my European friends who is a former player, uh, who's played against him said he's the strongest guy in in, uh, in Turkey. So I'm anxious to see him, although uh, I think he's kind of moved up to a point where he, it might be a little too high for him. But um, again, once you get to past five, five or six, we're all going to have our favorite guys. No doubt. No doubt. And, and I think you kind of hinted at, but bring up a really interesting point that Shangun and Chris Duarte may really evaluate well, or just be the right talking point for that, which is, the kind of lower ceiling, but higher floor kind of known commodity prospect who might be a little bit older versus somebody who's young and has a ton of upside, but really wide variance of outcomes. How do you go about evaluating those or trying to figure out which you prefer? Well, first of all, the, you know, when we, when we do this, you know, as our hobby or as amateurs, we, we, we evaluate in a vacuum and what we have to do is put ourselves in this, in the place of a team, you know, like if you look at a team like San Antonio or these are off the top of my head now, I don't have the list in front of me, but San Antonio or Charlotte or, you know, potentially New Orleans, uh, let's with Changun, let's just say it's a matter of need, you know, it might like Charlotte could use a center, you know, San Antonio could use a young center. Um, so a lot of it is not just where they would rank on a board from one to 50, but it's, mm -hmm. You know, would would uh, would a team? I, I've always been a believer in, in in draft the best NBA prospect possible, and not for position, unless two guys are so close that you are taking for need. So, in Shangun's case, um, and and actually Duarte's case, I could see him sliding uh, past the lottery because I think a lot of people think that he's kind of on the border now. Uh, but I could see him going to a team that's a playoff team because. They don't really care about development as much as they care about being able to plug a guy in right now. Whereas Shangun, it's interesting because he's 18 or just about to turn 19. And that's scary because his upside, I would agree, is not as high as a Jalen Green. But if you gave me Nick Vucevic now for the next 10 years with Shangun, I would probably take it. So and then you plug in a good NBA player in time. So I just think when we when we evaluate these guys, we also have to. Um, we have to kind of look at the board and say, okay, who's taking, who's drafting, what do they need? But also not to, not to just draft on need. I'm not a proponent of that. Absolutely. And I think part of the need conversation is about what skills they might be, they maybe lack right now, but you as an organization believe you can develop, you know, San Antonio is, is yeah. renowned for their ability to develop three point shooting and, and continue to work with guys to be consistent in right. those areas where maybe they're less scared away by somebody who's not as polished in that area right now. Let me ask you one thing uh, as a coach, which is kind of fun to be able to talk to somebody who's also a coach is when you evaluate these young guys, do you, do you look at their shooting form and say, man, if I had him in my gym for the next two months, we can do, we can fix that thumb. You know, we can fix the guide hand or he's all he's got to do is get his follow through a little bit higher. We can, re we can get that to be repeatable. How do you feel about, from a coaching standpoint, evaluating somebody's shooting? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I always default to really wanting guys who are consistent with their form. And I yeah. think that that's the easiest way to work with it. Even if you're 29, 30% and you're not really above that level that a lot of teams would look at and say, he's a good shooter. If the form is consistent and replicable, I think that's pretty easy to, um, to continue to work with because yeah. their body mechanics, the fluidity show that there's ability to replicate the same form time and time again. Uh, yeah. I also think I learned a couple lessons over the last few years in evaluation that adding range when form is strong is easier to do than, than I originally thought. Yeah. So those are two areas that I'm more willing to bet on with a guy. If the mechanics are all over the place, if you know sometimes it's a thumb issue, sometimes it's base, there's different landing spots with their feet. 
yeah. I tend to be a little bit more worried about, okay, it's not just one or two areas that I would want to, uh, to work on and fix. Cause for me, you know, development plans are a huge part of this. You mentioned wanting to wait three years to judge prospect, yeah. judge yeah. class. When I take somebody in the draft, I want to know that I have the vision for how to continue to make them a better basketball player. And whether it's developing shooting, different functional parts of their game and how they're going to be used on an NBA court, that has to factor into the discussion to me. So when it comes to, to shooting in particular, it's, it's functional shooting. Is this guy yeah. just a spot-up threat? Is he a movement shooter? Is he really good off the pick and roll and off the dribble? Can he extend far out to three? Is, are his mechanics consistent and, and easily replicated? And that's where I think Duarte, like you said, has a ton of appeal. He's really, really good in all those categories, and it looks the exact same every time. Yeah, and I think Jared Butler is similar. He has he – has, uh, Jared made a bunch of NBA threes this year. Um, you know, somebody did a study on the shooters in this draft, and they uh, – like a Corey Kispert made 66 NBA threes. That's two a game. We're not talking about a college three. We're talking about 23, nine and, nine and out. And uh, I also think that one of the points that I'd like to make uh, to, to people who are listening is that not all player development is created equally. And, and I don't mean that to be negative, but the simple fact is you mentioned San Antonio with, with Chip England, uh, who is uh, you know former Duke player. Um, I know from my experience talking to my friends around the league that uh, there are, most teams do have a player development plan. There's no question, but I, I was surprised at a number of teams who I've uh, um Let's just say I have some insight into that their player development was lacking, actually. But but to, to flip it around, when you are looking at a prospect and you have confidence in your player development people and you can marry the two with the young man's work ethic, which is critical, because uh, I always say, uh, Adam, uh, some players want to be in the NBA and then there's a few that want to be NBA players. You know, everybody wants to be in the NBA, but not not everybody wants to be an NBA player and put the time in over five years. So that's and that, and again, that goes back to the background uh, information that we're all trying to glean. And from my standpoint, it's really I wouldn't say it's easy, but I have the luxury many times, many seasons, not so much this year because of covid of being in a gym with a kid from Baylor or Kansas 10 times during the year and say, man, this kid is going to work at it or. There have been guys, honestly, that I've watched practice over the course of a college season and say, you know what? I don't think he loves basketball. And that's oftentimes turned out to be true as well when they uh, when their NBA career ends like five years in. So it's kind of interesting how that works. Well, and, and you mentioned you know, character being an important part of this. Many yeah. of us on the outside, like I know I have a very limited role, very, very few people that I, I speak to that can give a lot of insight to this process. Yeah. Where does that really tend to be a, a separator in terms of equal talent or, or how close of talented players need to be in order for it to say, hey, I'm going to go with a guy who I just believe in? Is it a, a deal breaker 100 percent? Do you absolutely have to have this or is it uh, is there an area or a threshold that it has to meet? Well, I think it's a continuum. You know, I think that, you know, like I always say, there's three kinds of players in this world. Those that know, those that don't know and those that don't know, they don't know. Um, very few players know, um, especially coming into a league like the NBA. Most don't know, which is fine. That, that's what we call coaching. You know, that's our job is the kids that don't know to teach them whatever it might be, skills, uh, uh, schemes and, you know, uh, offensive, defensive concepts. But those that don't know, they don't know. Group three, they think they know. So they become much harder to coach because. Oftentimes they've been great AAU and high school players and in some cases college players, and they actually think they have all the answers. And uh, that those are the guys that are most difficult to coach. And those are the guys that usually don't reach their potential uh, as NBA players because it takes them a long time to figure out that there's a lot to learn about the game that they don't know. So I, I think that it's a huge factor in success and failure, quite honestly. Now, some guys have so much talent that they can overcome what they don't know, because you can just put them out on the floor and they, they might be a bucket getter or a shot blocker or a rebounder. But I, I think what I love about the NBA, Adam, um, and, and what I know about it, and I do have a son in the league now who gives me some intel, is that there's the amount of time NBA players put it on, put in the offseason on, on developing. 
And when you have a young guy, like if you talk, talk about a Jonathan Kuminga or a Scotty Barnes and his outside shooting, for example, Keon Johnson and his shooting, you do want to know what makes him tick, you know, what's made him tick at Tennessee or Florida state and how that may translate. And what do you, what's your staff going to be able to do with him? So that's a long-winded answer, but I do think that you have to factor in that the, the, the intangible, what kind of work ethic will they bring to the table? Fran, on, on that line, is there a, a skill in particular that you feel is easiest to develop at the NBA level if a guy doesn't have it coming out of college or, or high school or, or you know, internationally? Yeah, that's a really good question. I never worry about the defensive end of the floor because I just assume that most first and second round picks come in. Very few of them are, def- are like to defend or can defend. Just like when uh, you get a kid in uh, 10th grade this year at, at, at uh, Baltimore Latin, they're probably going to come in with really no concept of how you want them to defend. Um, so um, I never worried about that. I was a very good defensive coach, I will, I will say. So I could probably take five guys, put them in shell for 20 minutes. If they had a lot of heart and toughness, they would be good defensively. It's the offensive side that takes uh, – takes the work I think but uh no I think um one of the one of the things I have fallen in love with is teaching NBA pick and roll um and uh I think that's very doable for somebody who has some passing skills ball handling skills and some some level of basketball intelligence I think that's I I think the reason I say it's easier to teach is because quite frankly Adam I don't think high school and college coaches understand the sophistication of NBA defenses and how to attack Let's just say, for example, I'm going to guess here, but I would say roughly there are about 10 different, there's 10 different pick and roll coverages in the NBA. You know, in college, it might be five. In high school, it might be three. Um, And so I I do think you can get to a point like a young quarterback in football reading pass coverages that you can read pick and roll coverages and rep them. I'm, I'm I'm a big believer in player development and repetition. So, yeah, I think that's an area that a college guard who has NBA athleticism and but particular amount of skill level can be developed reasonably quickly. Sure. And, and vice versa, what would you say might be the, the most difficult skill or, and not necessarily, you know, I think there are a lot of natural traits that guys have, yeah. right? Like you can't teach size or athleticism right, right. Things necessarily, but in terms of skill, what would you say is the hardest thing to add to a player once they get to the league? Well, I do think, I think when, I think shooting um, may be the hardest from this standpoint. Um, I totally agree with you about, um, you know, technique and, and, and making subtle adjustments to somebody who does not uh, shoot it great right now. Um, but I also think that once you change the muscle memory somewhat, then it's up to the player to really put the time in. Like when I, and, and, you know, Scotty Barnes is a perfect example of this. There's so much to like about him um, as a player, as a young man, he, there's no, there's no red flags about his character uh, obviously his, his athleticism, but you know, like shooting, that's going to be a key for his success in the league. And if he doesn't become a good shooter, now, listen, I'm a big believer in Ben Simmons ability. I don't know what happened mentally, you know, from a mental approach this year, but that guy has been a three-time all-star in five years. He's a three-time defensive, all defensive team. You can be a very good NBA player. If you're, if you're unique, like Scotty is without a jump shot. But I do think that, um, you know, the, the shooting is probably the hardest because it's, and this is why it's the most important for a perimeter player. It, it's, it's almost essential minus great athleticism like Ben or Scotty to be able to have that. in like Royce O'Neal would not be a good NBA player, even though he's tough and hard nosed, if he didn't have the ability to knock down 40% of his threes, all the other intangibles that he brings to a good NBA team. Uh, PJ Tucker is another example. This guy did not shoot a three point shot into at Texas, not one in three years. And now we know him, know him as a three and D guy, but we also know that he can make, you know, 38% of his three. So I do think that's still uh, important to a player's development as an NBA player. And and it took PJ a while to get there, right? He was not even in the NBA for a while as he was refining those skills and traits. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure that some Serbian coach somewhere on his trails through Europe for six years, you know, got him in a gym with those three a day practices they're known for. But seriously, I think PJ probably figured out this is the this is one uh, way to unlock the key to being an NBA player was to evolve into a perimeter player. By the way, in college, every basket he scored was near the rim. Every basket. 
He was a great post-up player. And yeah, you very almost never see him post up in the NBA. Well, the reason I ask those questions about strengths and and weaknesses or areas of skill that are easiest and hardest to to teach necessarily are in terms of how it goes hand in hand with player evaluation, right? So if you have somebody who's a really, really good shooter, but doesn't necessarily have the idea of how to play out of the pick and roll or how to defend yet, you might be more encouraged to take and work with them as opposed to somebody who's already polished in those areas and say, well, if they can't shoot it and they already have so to speak, a lot of bloom that's already come off the, the rose because they've learned high IQ traits that might be a detractor from taking them over somebody else. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, Trey Murphy is a perfect example of this from Virginia. You know, this kid went to un, under recruited, went to Rice, ended up transferring to Virginia with the idea he was going to sit out this year. And all of a sudden he's stuck into the lineup. And not only does he is he put into the lineup because he's eligible to play thanks to the NCAA, but he blossoms for Tony Bennett. And in my mind, he's probably one of the three or four best shooters in this draft. And at, you know, six, nine ability to shoot it reasonably athletic. I don't know what other, what other trait might be a plus NBA wise, but certainly size length uh, and ability to shoot the ball. Uh, I say length athleticism and ability to shoot the ball makes him a hot commodity because you can stick him in a, you know, in a corner and, and spread pick and roll and if his man helps off on a roller to the rim and, and Chris Paul or one of those point guards that doesn't understand pick and roll can throw the cross court jump pass. I'll be interested to know if you let your Latin kids do that, you know, the, uh, but can now Trey Murphy's got an open three that the chances are he's going to make 40% of those at the NBA level. So a guy like that, you know, is going to be valuable, even though when I look at him, I go, boy, I wish he could do certain things better. The simple fact is he's got an NBA skill that's going to really translate, particularly because of his size and his length and athleticism. No, absolutely. No, no jump passes from us yet, coach. But uh, but it's funny. It's funny because as you get older, like I was never a jump pass guy or a hook pass guy. But my new rule is don't jump to look for a pass, jump to make a pass. And in the NBA and in Europe, that is essential to being able to be a pick and roll point guard, you have to make the cross court pass effortlessly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought up Trey Murphy as well, because I think that he's a, a fascinating piece in kind of team building right yeah. now, where, as we've seen with the way rosters have been constructed, at least at a championship level yeah. over the last five or 10 years, you have one, two, maybe three main guys in what I call pillars of your organization. Yeah. And then you, you fill in the gaps around them with expert role players, guys who embrace their role and maximize the group as a whole. Yeah. Um, Murphy fits into that category a little bit more, right? Because he is that yeah. traditional three and D spot up shooter, really good defensive type of prospect. How much stock do you put in seeing somebody who's already been a role player previous to coming into the NBA and knowing again, and the known commodity question of, I know he can do this as soon as he gets here versus maybe a really skilled, high-character guy who was the man, so to speak, in college and might have to make that type of assimilation to be somebody different at the pro level. How how do you weigh in on that discussion? There's so so many layers to that answer. First of all, I've never heard expert role player. That's a great term. It really is. You know what we call expert role players in the NBA? Millionaires. (laughs) You know, because, you know, that's really what happens is it's a league of role players. It's – I always tell people, and I ask my NBA friends this because I'm I'm obviously ensconced in college most of the year, but I love the NBA. Um, and and you know the, the consensus is there's 25 stars, you know there's 25 Devin Booker types, you know LeBron, Doncic, throw you know throw them all together. There's 25 to 30 of them, and the other 420 plus now because every team's got a few more than 12 players on the team, but the other 420 plus are role players. And Cam Johnson's a perfect example. You remember the Heat. That um, that Phoenix, that's really actually, I thought that was a steal and not so much taking cam, but the trade, because as I knew Jared Culver really as well as anybody from watching him at, the, at, at Texas Tech. And what happened was, and I hate to do this, but I do do this. I, I tend to find somebody early uh, because I cover the Big 12 in the league that I say this kid's going to be an NBA player. And unfortunately, they get overvalued after that. Um, you know, it. it uh, not, but certainly not Buddy Heald and certainly not Tyrese Halliburton, but 
when I saw Jared Culver as a freshman, I said, this kid's going to play in the NBA. Now, the problem was he is going to play in the NBA, but he hasn't improved the shooting yet. And so when Minnesota made that trade six for 11, I believe, and threw in Dario Saric, who unfortunately is probably going to miss next season. I just, and then they took Culver. I said, that this isn't a one-sided deal. Now I didn't, because I just think he went too high and I love the kid. He's an amazing kid, by the way. So uh, I, I think, I think most of these kids coming into the NBA have the emotional intelligence, by the way. And I know Ray's on this listening, um, with us and, and chiming in, I, I think the character of NBA players is better than it's ever been. Like, I, you know, like these guys really, for the most part, are serious minded guys. They care about the game. Very few of them get in trouble off the court. The way Ray and I remember maybe in some eras, like in the 70s and 80s, Ray, with the drug problems. We remember the jailblazers. The jailblazers, certainly. <laughs> so we remember I the 94, think, 95 Nets. Yeah. Yeah. There's been like definitely. The, those those eras but adam i think most of the guys that are coming into the league have high emotional intelligence and can be can be made to explain that listen young man if you want to stay in this league for 10 years and make you know an average of six seven eight ten million dollars a year in some cases more for being a great role player like a clint capella then just be a great role player and i think these guys on their bank accounts will understand that after a couple of years you know, I think another way that they've shown that is in terms of their social activism during the last few years. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't really see that very much in previous years. Now, there's all sorts of reasons that can explain that. Yeah. But the fact that they've pretty unified stepped up in very significant social roles yeah. in a very, very positive way, I think says a lot. Yeah. And, and I think like every year recently, I've looked at the top 10, 15, 20 guys and more often than not, I'll say, great kid, great kid, great kid, great kid, you know, and, and, and usually, not always, but usually a corresponding work ethic or understanding of what they've got to do to get better will follow. Uh, not always, but for the most part. For sure. for sure. Coach, I know you and I could sit here and talk basketball <laughs> all day, every day, and just hit on so yeah. many different topics. But for a lot of the listeners that are tuning in and looking for something relevant to next week's draft and getting to yes. know some of the 2021 NBA prospects. Would you mind if we do a little bit of rapid fire here, throw out a couple of yeah. quick thoughts. So, and listen, um, jump in there, jump in there where you disagree. Cause I know um, I saw your board is some really good stuff. Um, and if you, if you, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on some of these guys too. And by the way, none of us are experts. Yeah, we, honestly, seriously, if you if you go back and look through the draft, and I have a lot of friends in the league, as does Ray, even guys that have been doing this 30 years get as many wrong as you and I do. So um, none of us, I, I hate when they say draft expert, because I, I would say I'm a draft, I, I'm a draft analyst, Fair but I'm, I'm certainly not a draft expert. That, that's for sure. Maybe other people are, but well, not me. Looking back at your, both of your records, I'm going to say yeah. you're being too modest, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, well I, yeah, I, I would, I would just, uh, I would say the difference between me and Adam is that uh, I've been doing this 40 years, so I've made more mistakes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, We're right too. But also I, I, I've got the luxury of, of, a, of a, what I, what I call as he does, I have an educated eye because I've been watching basketball for, for over 40 years. So it's kind of fun to see how my eye develops over time and what I miss and what I don't miss. So anyway, fire away, Adam, I'm ready. You got more triumphs than I do as well. That's for sure. But uh, as, as a big 12 analyst and somebody who covers the game there, Kai Jones. Uh, boomer bust. I love the kid. Uh, I love the kid as a young man. He's one of the best athletes in the draft. He's the best running big man in this draft. Um, he's going to end up uh, being a stretch four because he does show a, an ability to someday shoot the ball. I think overall physical strength is going to be a factor as to whether he can make a jump from being a role player to a starter Beyond a um, lot to like about him, but I don't think he's necessarily a sure thing. Another big 12 name uh, from West Virginia, Deuce McBride. You know, rock solid 12 year NBA player, maybe not a starter much of the time. Uh, great team guy, great locker room guy, highly competitive, not a pure point guard. I could see him, you know, for much of his career being an off the bench combo guard, make shots, play hard, defend. Not overall, believe it or not, even though he was a high school quarterback, not a super athlete by NBA standards. I would say slightly above. A little better athlete than Jalen Brunson, who I loved and thought was can't miss, 
not quite Jalen's overall acumen for the game, but a guy that NBA, if he was playing for you at Latin school and he was a sophomore in high school, you would absolutely love the kid and his intangibles. And I think an NBA team would feel the same way. I'm, I've got to ask you, what do you think? Uh, Deuce McBride. Well, I love Deuce McBride. Um, I have him as a, a top 20, top 25 guy. I see a lot of Marcus Smart there. I think that's where the off the bench energy, defensive intensity, like ability yeah. to yeah. embrace his role really is, is apparent for a guy like him. Yeah, I think he is absolutely going to embrace any role a team gives him and uh, try to make it better as over the course of his career. Yeah. Uh, another name, Zaire Williams from Stanford. Um, man, he's the ultimate boomer bust uh, because you know, like you, you loved his, you loved, I remember watching him at USA basketball and I thought, man, is he skinny? Uh, and you know, some things you really like about him, um, his overall athleticism. I think he's got a chance to be a good shooter. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but my recollection is he did not make a high percentage of shots. I personally am not in love with him. Um, now he's probably a great kid. Don't get me wrong. So the Williams family is listening to this. You know, and, um, this is not a personal attack, but I will say this. Uh, my sense is I would want to know if I was an NBA team drafting him, how much he loves the game because it's come easy to him with his athleticism. And I, I would definitely do my homework on him. I wouldn't give me, I wouldn't give him a, nest, a, a stamp of approval right off the bat. Fair enough. Fair enough. You're watching a lot of Olympic coverage leading up to everything here and, and doing everything on that. And, Usman yeah. Garuba out of Spain. Do you have any initial thoughts on him? Yeah, yeah. I think I think given his age and the level of play and given the fact that talk about role player, he's the ultimate. Um, you know, I think he's going to be a, a he's a little bit more. He's a little bit more of a, a four, five, even though he's on only six, eight, than say OG Ananobi. He's not Clint Capella. He's not OG Ananobi. He's somewhere in between athletically. And I think he's going to be one of those guys that can guard threes and fours, sometimes fives. His shooting is, is coming. It's crazy. I never thought he'd be able to be a guy that could make threes. I think that is a possibility. I, you know what, where he's going to be picked is in the teens or twenties. Or and you talk about development of, of a kid that's already proven he can play at the level of the second best league in the world. I, uh, I, I like him. Now I will say this, here's where you do your homework. He played with Walter Tavares, the seven foot four former Cleveland Cavalier. And so they had to, by necessity, play him on the perimeter uh, on offense because they played what we call four corners offense, pick and roll with four corners covered and a big guy running out. And it was always Walter. And so Usman got the benefit of playing on the perimeter a little bit, which I think is going to help his NBA career uh, adjust. And, and he was over 34% from three uh, this it's year. But he slowly climbed up in it's those. Coming. I, didn't, I didn't see that, Adam, a year ago, which is, again, another thing about evaluating is being able for you and I to go back and see how a guy has improved over a year or two. Absolutely. And, and I, I love Garuba. I actually yeah. have him as a, a top 10 guy in, in my board as that certain role player and, and just mm. an unbelievable, unbelievable defender. He's one of those guys. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, I, I don't do necessarily a mock, but I have it in my head. And I have no issue with somebody that sees him as a top 10 pick and grabs him. And then all of a sudden, like Cam Johnson, they look like geniuses. And it only takes one team to get it right. You know, and we were talking about this yesterday, Ray. Um, I, I love John Hammond, uh, who's now at the Magic. My, my son actually works for John. And John picked... Uh, uh, the Greek freak 15. That was a, you know, you talk about bad draft. That was a bad draft. <laughs> but um, the interesting thing is, would John have taken him at eight or nine if Kelly Olynyk was still on the board? You know, you don't, I don't know. So, you know, sometimes a kid like Garuba will slide and we look back and go, why didn't they, why didn't people figure out he was a top 10 pick? And sometimes it's, you know, well, I, we, we take him at 18 and he turns out to be an all-star. Well, we wouldn't have really taken him if we had the ninth pick. So I have a question in that regard for you. How did Tyrese Halliburton slide to 12? You know, um, it's a good question. I think, see, I think he went to the perfect team. And you're, and you're a sack guy. Yeah. I, I think that Tyrese, I don't know if Tyrese is ever going to be an all-star. I think to Adam's point earlier, Tyrese absolutely knows who he is and understands his role. And I thought going to a team with the mercurial Buddy Heald who I love, who my son played with for three years, and 
the sometimes mercurial De'Aaron Fox was perfect because he's a guy that's a great teammate on the court. Yes. You know, he played with guys at Iowa State who were had one foot in the huddle and one foot out the door to the NBA. And it was a very disconcerting situation. And Tyrese recognized that and figured out that I, I need to do these things for my team for us to win. And I think he went to a perfect team. So I, I guess you could say he dropped based on the great season he had. But I also think he went to a team that he wasn't asked to do the kind of things that a star point guard would have to do when you play with Buddy Hield and De'Aaron Fox. I think he's the ultimate all-star role player for his whole career. A starter, but all-star role player. Yeah, and maybe it's the coaches in me or, or in us that value that so highly and end up yes. loving those guys in the, in the draft process. But uh, that's certainly projecting how I see a guy like Garuba, how I saw Devin Vassell a year ago yes. going to yeah. San Antonio. Um, sure. But, you, you know, I think that's a, an interesting segue, and I'll explain the point afterwards. Well, let me, well hold on. Well, let me add one thing to Ty because it's important sure. to this. And then I want to hear what you got, you got to say. First time I ever saw Tyrese Halliburton was the second game of his career against Missouri. At home, four starters out, literally four starters out. They beat Missouri by 15. He plays 39 minutes and has four points. And I said, this kid's their best prospect, NBA prospect. So you could kind of see his feel for the game and how he makes everybody better. And I think that's his greatest strength is he's a connector. I, I love that term as a coach. He connects his teammates to their own strengths and they don't even know it. Because yeah. he'll pass up shots to move the ball to keep somebody happy or keep somebody from freaking out like Taylor Horton Ducker would freak out at Iowa state. And they actually had to take Taylor Horton Tucker out of games late in games because he was trying to get to the NBA where they were trying to win a big 12 title with Shayok and Wendell Wigginton and Tyrese, no offense to Taylor. he was trying to get to the NBA. They were trying to win a big 12 title. So in the championship game at a big 12, I think Taylor didn't play the last eight minutes of the game. because they're actually trying to win the game. Yeah. Whereas Tyrese played the game to win and, you know, no offense. Taylor's going to get a contract here pretty good this year, but. Good for him. He's a good kid, but, well, but go I'm, ahead, Adam. I, I interjected. No, I I'm using the term connector quite a bit. So I'm glad you, you brought that up. Yeah. That's, uh, that's now in the repertoire here, but uh, I don't know how much G league ignite you got to watch or film you dove into yeah. from Isaiah Todd. Yeah. I like him. I like him. I think he was kind of a surprise in the, in the G league. Uh, you know, um, first of all, the reports about him as a from a character standpoint were high. Um, I would have loved to have seen him go to Michigan and play for Juwan Howard and, and, and selfishly only because number one, I, I would have liked to see him play in college. And number two, I think Juwan would have really helped him, but um, I like Isaiah. I think he's got the quintessential stretch four game and he is actually, you know, it's like Ray will remember like how Tyson Chandler was a bust maybe for five years in the NBA. And then all of a sudden at 25 or 24, 25, 26, he ended up having a, a great career. I think Isaiah Todd's one of those guys that, once it all comes together at 24, 25, he's going to be making threes on a playoff team. And he's going to be a well-thought-of guy, maybe just a role player. But again, he'll make millions of dollars doing that. But my, my sense is that I, that I like him. I think he's, you know, he's got enough athleticism, good size, and a shooting stroke that I think can be a you know, pretty good shooting stroke that he's going to be, fit into the modern game. What, how, where do you have him out of curiosity? I, I have him as a top 20 prospect. There you go. Yeah. Really, really like him. Again, the the ability to buy into being a role player at the NBA yep. right now. So many guys stick around in the league just by being stretch fours, whether it's yeah. a Nicolo Melli, Nemanja Bielitsa. There are guys who can find second, third contracts and be on good teams playing minutes just because they're tall and can shoot. And I think Todd has a lot of ceiling to do more, which is one of the reasons I, I brought it up, whether it's yeah. guys consistently at Kentucky or yeah. maybe this new G League Ignite program, the ability to sacrifice for the betterment of the team while you're playing there might not showcase all your skills for the next yeah. level. And there's so much latent upside. We've seen that with Devin Booker, Jamal Murray, Emmanuel quickly to do more with the ball in their hands than they might have shown prior to coming to the NBA. And I think yeah. there's a little upside for Todd to do that, where he's playing next to Kaminga and Green and they get all the love. He yeah. sacrifices his touches, doesn't play with the ball in his hands a lot. I think there's a lot of upside in those areas too. Yeah. And I think he's a great experiment this year because it, it'll be interesting to see summer league pre preseason training camp. And then the, then the season as a rookie, 
how much of being in the G League, we won't really know, but we can get a feel for how much being in the G League and playing against men um, will help his development. You know, that'll be interesting. I mean, I think Jalen Green, if he, even if he didn't play this year and, and sat out, would be a good NBA player. I think, you know, Kamingo a little different, as I said, because I think he needs experience. But Todd, I'm anxious to see. Uh, by the way, I ran the uh, Under Armour All-American camp for three years, and we had Isaiah as a freshman. And the thing I saw about him was, boy, is this kid talent, but he has no clue how to work. And he was 14 years old, you know, so, but I I was worried about him becoming a a group three guy. You remember what I said about groups one and two and three doesn't know. He doesn't know what I saw this year in the G league is he was in group two. He doesn't know, but that's okay. Cause we can coach that. I thought his effort level was good. Really good in that, in the G league, he can actually be, a high energy rebounder someday to go along with the fact that he's going to be a stretch on offense. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, coach, I know your time is valuable, so I don't know if you have any parting thoughts here before we wrap up, but uh, I want to know from you based on what you see, because I don't really study the mock drafts, but based on what you're seeing and the consensus, the herd, who are some guys you think are, give me a couple guys you think are too high uh, according to your analysis, I've read your stuff now. I know you know what you're doing. You, you do a good job with this. Um, and uh, that thing you did on the, who, whoever did the three pillars, that was yeah, the group, right? Yes. Good stuff. Good stuff. I read that a few weeks ago. Um, but um, give me a couple guys you think are not, shouldn't be as highly thought of and guys that you think are too low that are going to be better. Sure. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you saying that, Coach. Um, Franz Wagner is one who I think gets a little bit overvalued right now. And it's, I love role players. I love guys who embrace their roles in those ways. But one thing that I noticed from diving into the film this year at Michigan was Juan Howard did an unbelievable job of putting him in the left corner and in the left wing. So every time he attacked a closeout or came off a screen or a handoff, it was hard to his right hand. That's one kind of bugaboo for me in an area where he's a very good passer, not an elite shooter. But if he's has to be catered to as a role player in the NBA to get to his strengths and, and attack the basket, I might have a little bit of pause. And hold and then, on. Yep. I, I, I 100% agree with you. 100%. And you said something that is really fascinating that I never hear talked about. And that is when I watch tape of these guys, I watch it from the standpoint of a coach. And, and, and Juwan Howard is an offense by, by, by college standards, Adam, he's an offensive genius. Not that he's a genius because he, he would admit he's not, but by college standards, he's an offensive genius and everything you said, he may still be better than me. We both think, but to, he absolutely, his strengths were absolutely magnified. And I don't think his weakness has shown as much, except the one weakness that's the key weakness is he didn't shoot the ball great. The other name that I think it's a little over would be Davion Mitchell out of Baylor for the same reasons. Certainly think he's a, an unbelievable athlete, unbelievable first step. And that's yeah. the best part yeah. of his offensive game right now. But he was very one dimensional when he got to the basket in terms of his finishes. It was pretty much all inside hand with his right on the left side and high, very quick off the glass, not a ton of deceleration when he was going uh, from the right side of the floor. So those areas worry me in a floor where there's maybe less spacing and less um, quick, you know, ability to make decisions at that, at the rim level. So I'm, I'm to blame for Davion Mitchell. Okay. (laughs) Because what usually happens, and I say this humbly, but I'm going to say it anyway, is I jump on a guy early and and let everybody know he'll be a first round pick. And then everybody else moves him. I don't even know, like, like Kai Jones wasn't in the draft express top 60 in December. Okay. And like I just said on draft, uh, it was it was Villanova game. Uh, Villanova won a close game in Austin, and I said he's the best NBA prospect on the floor, which he still is, I believe. But I I think that you made some points that I kind of agree with. That uh, and then uh, and then being six one is what he measured out at. I think a little bit under six two. Uh, you know, I think that team got guards in the league are going to shoot over the top of him. Yeah, certainly, certainly, that's how I'm kind of feeling right now. And then you, you asked one guy I'm really high on. I, I like Keon Johnson at Tennessee. Those natural things you can't teach. Like you and I said, not as much worry about teaching the, the defense or the pick and roll IQ. I think if the shooting does come along, yeah. he's going to be in a good spot. And uh, I find a lot of consistency in his stroke, which leaves me optimistic. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Keon. 
We could never be in the same draft room because once somebody once said, if two, if two guys think exactly alike, then one of them is replaceable. <laughs> so, but so I'm looking your, for a job then is what you're no, saying. No, no, no. Listen, I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you one more time. I, I love Keon as well. He, he played for Rick Barnes, who I work for. He is the, I'll tell you, I said this, and, and this is not, this is not to denigrate Davion Mitchell at all, but as much credit as Davion gets for being the best defensive player in this draft, I think, Keon Johnson has absolutely the same long-term defensive potential. Number one, he's got a motor. Number two, he's as good an athlete as there is in this draft. Um, a lot of people don't realize he didn't play his senior year in high school, which means there's still more upside coming. Character is checks out, checks out off the uh, off the charts. And I think offensively. Now, the one thing that I would be working on with him from the day I draft him is get him in a gym with a Chip England-type shooting guy because I don't think it's broken, but if he, if he can end up being a kind of shooter that a, you know, any, you know, like a PJ Tucker is, for example, I think the kid's going to be an elite NBA player and maybe a star. So we, we are three for three. I don't know if I, I don't know if you should be worried about that or <laughs> you should be glad that we are right on the money on all three guys. Well, you make me way, feel better. I, yeah. I just, you make me feel better so I can, you know, so, part uh, so guys, I have a question um, that, in regard to this year's playoffs and starting from the assumption that uh, as everybody has said for a long time, we have a copycat league. Um, is there anything that you saw in the playoffs this year? And I'll give one example, but you can say whatever. Uh, for example, the, the um, centrality of the mid range this year, as opposed to previous years, does that have any influence on, or do you expect it to have any influence on and, and there, are there any concrete examples you can give on, a draft because we know that the, that we know that copycat is fairly typical. So something like that, does that influence the draft? I would say, Adam, if you don't mind me going first, um, my, my NBA friends tell me like the mid range is not important except in the playoffs, you know, like uh, those people who subscribe to the, you know, obviously the, the rim shots and the, the three point shots, you know, no mid range shots that that really flies out the window during the playoffs in a seven game series where people are taking away the three point line and making you make mid range pull-ups. And so I just think it's a function. If I would, I, I wouldn't necessarily draft for it other than I would draft for offensive skill level. And to me, making a 17 foot pull-up or a 15 foot pull-up is part of somebody's offensive package. So for example, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody that comes to mind, but, uh, Let's just take James Booknight. You know, what I like about James Booknight is he can create his own shot. And so when we get him downhill in a, in a big NBA game in time and they chase him off the line and his shooting is obviously something they might even play off of him early on. But I think that's a kid that can get into the 16 foot range and just raise up over you and get his own shot. I think shot creation is an underrated skill in the NBA. Chuck Daly once said, what will the player do when the play break down? Because the play will break down. And can a guy go get his own shot with five seconds or four or three on a shot clock? And I think shot creation is critical. So as I look at some of these kids in the draft, you know, um, a guy that comes to mind is would be a book night, maybe a Moses Moody a little bit, not in love with Moses. A lot of people are, but I do think there is some potential for being a guy that can create his own shot. I think that's important, Ray, being chased off the line and getting to 16 feet and being able to bang a jump shot with off a broken play. Yeah, right. Adam, I'd love to hear your thought on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all the points you made. You know, for me, in looking at postseason play and trying to say how does this impact who or what we're trying to draft, I'm looking for more large stylistic changes. So, for example, when Golden State made their push five, six years ago and did so with Draymond Green going smaller, you had to think more from a roster construction standpoint of mm -hmm. do we have to play small in order to get to that level and beat them and have that ace in the hole that can guard the team when they go small and shoot as much as they do against us. Uh, this year, probably the two things that stand out most to me are learning from watching Utah lose to the Los Angeles Clippers and how Rudy Gobert had to be asked to both defend corner three-point shooters and protect the rim at the same time how hard of an ask that is and whether that's a schematic shift or trying to find ways to, um, you know, again, have that ace in the hole that might be able to make sure your pick and roll coverage isn't as one dimensional as it ends up being in the playoffs. 
And then the second for me is large wing defenders are never really out of style. And if there's one area that I think Phoenix and Milwaukee both had in common, it's that they have guys with plus wingspans who move their feet, can guard multiple positions and really shut down opposing wings and guys that like coach mentioned are going to be able to create their own shot when, when plays break down to win that one-on-one battle defensively. That's where Mikhail Bridges comes in handy. That's where, you know, Giannis, PJ Tucker are all really, really excellent in those areas. So it's more so about what it takes to win now as much as overall lessons that I've learned. You know, to, to that point, we know who the top five or six are. Uh, who would be a guy or two on your list that would fit that category? Because that's such a great point about the versatility of all those wing defenders. That was really obvious in the playoffs. Are there guys like, uh, would a Trey Murphy fit into that category? Um, who would be a guy that you could see being a wing defender and not necessarily be a detriment offensively as well? Right. Yeah. I think Murphy certainly stands out as the most clear cut role player because that was what he was asked to do with Virginia. Right. I have, I have a lot of faith in Garuba to end up being yep. good enough, moving his feet defensively to guard yep. those guys, even though he's a little bit larger. Yep. I like Moses Moody's wingspan. He's not as quick laterally, but yep. with that length and his timing to, to block shots on the perimeter, uh, it's hard not to love that. And then I actually think Jalen Johnson out of Duke has some upside to be that type of, of wing defender. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, he's, he's a mystery to me because yeah. uh, and of course the, he's, it's well chronicled about him, you know, leaving the Duke team. I hate to call it quitting, but I, I, you know, I guess he quit, you know, but my concern with Jalen, to your point, is I don't know what his game is yet. Like he's a he's a terrific wing athlete, and he is the quintessential big wing athlete. Now I think it's important for Jalen when he gets to a team is to have him figure out with with the team what am I going to be, and then let's like to me he's NBA silly putty. What can we mold Jalen Johnson into being with this prodigious athleticism? but seemingly no game. Now, I didn't say he can't play. I just said, I don't know what his game is yet. And his game, to your point, Adam, may actually be, you know, wing defending, you know, wing defender. Now, where did, where's the offense going to come? You know, so he's interesting because someone's going to get a really nice piece of NBA silly putty, even if he's not drafted as high as maybe he thought when he came to Duke 12 months ago. Right. And, and one guy that just be remiss if I didn't mention who's inside that top tier, who has those traits is Scotty Barnes. And I think that's yeah. obvious to everybody that watches him. Yeah. What's your concern about Scotty Barnes shooting? What's your level of concern? Um, it's kind of mediocre right now. Like I have concern about, especially off the dribble um, more yeah. than anything. I think he can rep the standstill shooting enough where he'll be passable, but because he's such a good passer and you want him with the ball in his hand, he has to be able to hit something off yeah. the bounce. But I, I also believe so much in the other facets of his game, athletically, yeah. in transition, defensively, that I'm willing to bet on him regardless. You know, um, I've, I've talked to, I talked to some, some of his uh, high school coaching people, and they, uh, they obviously love him. And they also said that he played hurt this year, that he played on a bad ankle. And not making excuses at all, because I don't know if he missed many games, if any. One of my concerns about him is the passing, it, it, which is which he gets a lot of credit for because it's six nine. It's something he does better than probably any six nine player in this draft. But one of my concerns about his passing, believe it or not, is being on time and on target. Like he is a good, he sees it. He he definitely sees it. And he de but the, the the tape I watched, and I can't say I studied every single game. What concerns me is open players and not on time on target passing. And it'll be interesting. I, I am probably in the minority on thinking he's going to be a star. And man, I will raise my hand uh, easily if it turns out to be because there are no red flags about him as a young man. Everybody I've talked to just thinks he's going to be tremendous. And uh, obviously, there's some unique characteristics about his game that are going to translate. I'm very anxious to see how he does because the shooting concerns me. And then, you know, the uh, and, and also... You know, they switched every possession and right. there were times, there were times where he got beat downhill by quicker guards. And I don't concern myself with that as much. Cause as I said, I think a defensive scheme in the NBA can, can manage that, uh, but it, I'm, I'm really interested to see how he develops because 
I do have some concerns, even though there's so much to like about him. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm very high on Barnes. Uh, I think the there's been a lot of communication about his rebounding concerns. And yeah. when you play in a switchable scheme and you're guarding point guards and so exactly. far away from the basket, it, it kind of mitigates a lot of that. So, well, and by the way, that's the same situation with Evan Mobley's rebounding in his own, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially when his brother at times was in the middle of the zone and he's contesting a corner jump shot and you're in zone 80% of the time, um, which they play. Yeah. That's where a coach comes in. I always felt uh, Ray that uh, every, every scouting staff in the NBA should have some coaches on the staff to be able to explain the game of basketball to the scouts. <laughs> like, or hire uh, former coaches to be your scouts. Well, that's what I mean. And yeah. I think that I think when when you yeah. when I see a former coach or two on a scouting staff, I think that's good because yeah. there'll be discussion in a draft room and somebody will say something and the coach will say, no, wait a minute. Right. We can play him in this scheme. Trust me, here's how we would play him. Yeah, exactly. So anyway. Uh, anything further from either of you? Nope, enjoyed it. You? I'm sorry? I enjoyed it. Uh, oh. I've always admired Adam's uh, stuff when I read it, and uh, now he'll probably be asking me about how Usman Garuba played for Spain. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it'll be it'll be fun, and um, it'll be, you know, it's it's fun. We're a week away, and, and uh, it's going to be fun to watch another draft come and go and see where all these guys land. Yeah. Well, hey, Coach, thank you for, for coming on here and, and collaborating with us and yeah, going back uh, and good forth. Stuff. Really good conversation. We, oh, we agree too much, Adam, <laughs> which I think I think is a good thing. I do. I know how much I love the game and study it. And so I and I know how much you do. So I'm going to take that as a compliment to me that we agree uh, pretty much on target on those guys we talked about. Well, I want to thank both of you for being such outstanding supporters of basketball intelligence that we publish daily, which, by the way, for those of you who are not subscribers, we're now a Substack publication, and it's at basketballintelligence.substack.com if you want to subscribe. But also, thank you for taking the time today. I, I know I got an education, and I'm sure everybody uh, who listened did as well. And one more thanks to our producer, Dylan Carter, who, um, without whom I know <laughs> I couldn't have done this. <laughs> so thanks to Dylan as well. And uh, again, thank you so much for um, taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. That was a pleasure.